welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and this week I am joined by my friend James Lilacs in a discussion of Middlebrow. We rant and rave about various aspects of the post-war decades in American culture and how they helped to shape the changes to come and the inherent instability of Middlebrow combinations. We talk about things we'd like to have back, things we're glad to have got rid of, and the strange fascination we share with cultural archaeology, retrieving things that Americans were once excited about or happy about or took for granted to see what they say about that way of life. James and I have been talking about Middlebrow's role in America, and this is the first in a series of podcasts we aim to do on a weekly basis to explore in no particular order the things that come to our attention. And so we start from the most mundane things. James, tell me about your day. Tell me about my day. Well, my day, well, so far this morning, I have resized three matchbooks uh, for my website. And I know that sounds incredibly exciting, but it actually is interesting in the end, because when you look at these matchbooks, you have to study them as a piece of art. You have to wonder what they were trying to sell. And then you have to look at whether or not the place who's selling them is still around. One of them was for a cigar shop in the lobby of the Golden Hotel. And the minute I started to research that, I got lost in a Wikipedia website rabbit hole about the fire of the Golden Hotel in 62. The other one was for a tobacco shop in the lobby of the McKnight Building in downtown Minneapolis, which is a place I walk through every single day practically. And I have no idea that they ever had such a thing in their lobby. So each one of these matchbooks is a little portal into some part of the past. And that's how I start the day. Uh, I do three of them, assuring that there'll always be something for the website for the weekly updates. And so far, I'm up to 2020. I could probably stop, but it's something to do in the morning and I like it. Yeah, it seems like you enjoyed the, if I get it right, especially mid-century Americana. Yes I, yes, I do. There's a period between, graphically, I love the 30s. Everybody thinks that the 20s were all crisp and art deco. They really weren't. Toward the end of the decade, yeah, but the 20s were a lot of brocades and beads and fussy stuff and classical details. But I like that anyway. I like the look of the 40s, although it's sort of muddled. They were all over the road. But I love the futurism and the optimism of the 50s and the early 60s. It all starts to go off the rails about 67, 66, 68. And then, of course, the period in which I grew up, the 70s. Oh, yeah. uh, one, of the th- one of the things I did this morning for the website was to cut up some pages of a 1975 Sears Christmas catalog. And there's just there's nothing uglier, period, than that period, period. I mean, you look at the middle 70s and the hues, the styles, everything about it is just dreadful. Uh, so there's a certain sweet spot in there of cultural optimism and uh, crisp design and fresh modernism that I like between about, you know, 49 to 64. I noticed I'm a fan of the website because I'm also inclined to look at these things and wonder how did people live back then? What was this like? It's strangely earnest for an age. People yes. were, it was a non-ironic America. That's precisely so. And it doesn't mean that people didn't apply irony and uh, sarcasm and uh, cock their eyes at the advertisements that they see. I'm sure that they did. I mean, a housewife who had done all of the chores and uh, looks at an ad for does or biz or whiz and, and there's a smiling, gorgeous blonde with perfect teeth, her hair tussling in the breeze as she beams at the chores that she's doing. I'm sure many a housewife looked at that and said, sure, sister. Uh-huh, sure. But at the same time, there was the idea that there is happiness attainable by the ordinary things that you do in your daily life. They oversold it, 
But were they that wrong? Go back about 50 or 60 years, because I also have a lot of ads on the site from the 1890s and 1900s. And there's virtually nothing to sell anybody but soap and collar pins. You know, soap and staples and nails and corsets. And that's about it. Oh, maybe some chocolate. It's a prescribed narrow life if you look at it only through the window of consumer culture. Of course, they had more. They had much more of their lives than that. But you can't reconstruct an age from its advertising, as I said before. You get a picture of it, but it's like trying to reconstruct a snowflake from a drop of water. You'll get the pith of the gist, but you there's so much that you miss. But by the same time, if you study only these things as pieces of art and commercial archaeology, it's fun and it's fascinating. Yeah, I think we share an interest in this. I am working on a book about Hitchcock's, the ah. pardon me, the movies from the 50s and a bit in the late 40s, early 60s, because they contain so much wonderful detail about American life. He was a very good observer and a very silent, unobtrusive, unpedantic teacher. He would show you all sorts of things that, of course, especially people at the time would have known as, this is new, this is old. Strangers on a Train has to have the Jefferson Memorial because it's set in Washington and it was brand new in 51. Mm -hmm. Or the new red brick high-rises in uh, post-war New York that you see in the rear window. I've walked through Manhattan, I've seen those things, and he really had an eye for where to set action so that it comments on American life. There's a term that I like to use when describing how movies capture the quotidian details of life, inadvertent documentary. And often in the cheapest movies, you'll see that these guys have bought some stock footage or they have just gone around with a camera and shot some shoe leather so they can put it in the back and rear projection or whatever. But you get a view that nobody said, we have to capture this incredible view. To them, it was just the street with the marquee and the signs and the lights and it was ordinary. Why would anybody care about this? But it's gone now. So we look to these old movies for this documentary that nobody intended to be as such. Hitchcock did an incredible job with Vertigo of giving you that sort of inadvertent documentary of San Francisco. Whoever thought the city would ever look anything different than it does in that? There's a period to there that's going to be blown away by modernity, but it's captured so beautifully in Vertigo. I'm not sure it's intentional. The camera is on Stuart. That He's right in the foreground of what we're looking at. We're not supposed to be scouring the back of the street looking for details that are lost. But when you mention a rear window, that's a perfect example of a set created to mirror what New York was so well. And I watch that movie every single year in the summertime, almost you know, repeating the experience of Jimmy Stewart himself. Because the audience is Jimmy Stewart in that movie. We're looking out the window at the world. And the ability that he has... I wish and I've seen it on the big screen, the ability that that movie has to drill down from where Stewart sits through the window, across the courtyard, across the street, into the cafe, into the cafe, to the back, to the jukebox, is one of the most amazing little things. And you get the sense of this vast, vast world, but so much life is taking place in this little tiny sliver of the screen. And that's why I love that movie so much, because even though a rear window is about the window in which we sit, where Stewart sits, and the window where he's observing what he thinks to be the crime, there's all these things around him. There's Miss Torso, there's Miss Lonely Hearts, there's the composer. There are all these stories going on around him. And you take that and multiply it, not just by every block, but by every part of every block in New York City. And you zoom out and you see the metropolis as you would over the, in the credits of West Side Story. The quantity of tales being told and the quantity of stories that we will never, ever know is overwhelming. And that's why I love how Hitchcock just gave us that place, that time, that week, and gave us a way of looking into that time that we can then sort of think about for the rest of the city, as a, use it as a template for such. But it's such a wonderful movie. 
And who is the guy who plays the piano up there? I'm trying to think. I I don't know him. I should have because I've written on this, but I missed him. Well, if only there was some worldwide computational network that we could use to, <laughs> to get these things. Say something brilliant while I look it up on IMDb. So I'm with you on Rear Window, and I think that it's a very powerful Wait, presentation hold on, hold of America. On. Stop. I, I think I know. I think it's something just occurred to me, and I haven't looked yet. I think it may be uh, Ross Beg, uh, an Armenian name, the guy who did the um, Elvin and the Chipmunks. I may be wrong here, but for some reason, Ross Bagadonuts. Bag bag oh, good. Bogosia? Uh, go, uh, yes, go on with your point. I'll see if I can find it. Look him up. So, in Rear Window, Jimmy Stewart plays an unusually manly Hemingway's guy. He got yes. himself broken up because. A little humiliated, but also a little excited about going from war reporting in war-torn South America or East Asia to a racetrack. He stepped in the middle of the track to be with mm -hmm. the action he wants to capture. And he's the kind of guy who kind of has contempt for the domestic optimism and happiness of post-war America. It's all too shallow, it's all too perfect. People in his backyard are boring and his gorgeous girlfriend is just too perfect but it turns out that he could yeah. be attracted to america when once he sees the moral complexity and even the darkness he has enough evil in him to recognize evil in other places and to become very interested and then he does realize that new york is a real city and america is a real place that he could be attached to and that's a great ops <clears throat> that's a great revelation for him to have. I don't think it makes him necessarily all the more interesting, though. I mean, somebody who can't see the drama and the joy and the complexity and also have Grace Kelly in the bargain, if you're bored by that, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, you don't exactly have my sympathy as, uh, as, as somebody that I'm rooting for. I'm rooting for you to, to realize how lucky you are. Uh, but yes, I mean, he views America perhaps as banal, and that is something to think about. We look back and think that there was such cultural confidence and everybody loved America and everybody was behind it. There was a great fracturing in the 50s. It fell apart fast, at least for the intellectuals. They were consumed by neuroses and anxiety, and they wanted this to be the age of anxiety. Rather than a striding Hemingway-esque character, they looked more to a Jack Lemon twitching, nervous kind of guy. Because who wouldn't be nervous in this world with the H-bomb and with the commies and all the rest? I mean... Yep, the 50s what? were the big era of psychiatry and the Freud in America. Right. Everybody had to be on a couch somewhere, if he was anybody. And that's... Really, when you look at how much that affected the movies of the time, you're happy for the ones where it's blissfully completely out of the picture. You just are. You, you, you realize that there are different strains that run through any particular culture, but they don't necessarily fountain up into every manifestation of the culture. Thank God. Go back to the 40s and you will. There's this uh, Hitchcock. What's what is it? Is it Spellbound? It, it, it's, uh, yes. What's, what's the. Yeah, okay. The crazy movie, right? Yep. The one with the Salvador Dali sequence. Yep. It is Spellbound. It, it's, it's that BS 40s psychology where, oh, he's got the mother complex. He has he has is a split personality. There's always the Viennese guy with a little white mustache and the black glasses spouting some pseudo-Freudian crap that has been repudiated over and over again. But they believed it, and it made for the worst plots, the worst stories. It was very unhelpful, but I think Hitchcock saw that this has got to be part of mythology now, that this is how you cast shadows, this is how you raise scares and possibilities in people's minds. But some of them, like Spellbound, it is hard to, to look at and still be part of the movie. 
he did much better when he stayed away from that sort of stuff. And I was just thinking today about all the actors that came up in the 50s as troubled talents, whether it was Jimmy Dean and Marlon Brando, or Monty Clift, and for that matter, Paul Newman. You mm -hmm. had all these varieties of American guys, and nevertheless, all of them had to be the troubled times. You had to jump into the other extreme. Right. The troubled guys, uh, somehow this gave them license. This gave them license in their private life, in their personal life, in their public life to be something different than the old guy. The old Hollywood model was the, was the guy always in a suit, unless he was in Palm Springs, and he behaved himself, and he was patriotic, and he went to church on Easter. Now you have these new troubled people who are deeply troubled and alienated from society. Why, you know, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? Looking back yep. again, it's like looking at Jimmy Stewart being nonchalant about having Grace Kelly for a girlfriend. You just you want to slap these people and say, don't you know how lucky you are? And by the time you roll around a West Side Story to mention that again, uh, the guys are in on the joke. I'm depraved on account of I'm deprived. And they're doing the whole <laughs> Officer Krupke routine, right? I mean, yes. they know that society in coming up with this whole anxiety and neurosis thing uh, is giving them license, essentially, to just have a Dionysian fling and let the id fly. Now, how many of them were actually truly alienated because of the whole, I mean, you look at the juvenile delinquent craze in the 50s, and you look at all of these characters, these sub-dean, sub-brando guys in t-shirts, and the slick back black hair, and the hipster slang, daddy-o, and they show up in television and movies, they show up in radio, and they're these repellent, sarcastic, alienated characters that you just... You just want to slap them. You just want to put them in the pen. The thing that the, you, you feel the culture looking at them and saying how ungrateful you little SOBs are. I got my ass shut off in the beach over here so I could come over and you could grow up and you could whine about the fact that uh, society hasn't quite come around to your exact specifications. So these guys are tiresome. Now, Monty Cliff, I just watched a movie he did with Olivia de Havilland and Ralph Richardson called The Heiress, which is a William Wyler film, and it's fantastic. It's based on a Henry James book, so you know it's going to move at a glacial pace. Yes. And at the end of it, the plot twist will be the sort of thing that they would have dispensed with three minutes into a movie today. But the acting is tremendous. And Monty mm -hmm. Cliff, placed in this, in this 1850s New York atmosphere, is anomalous. And there's something about him that strikes you as wrong for the times. He's right for the role because he breaks through and he seems to be this dangerous character. But then again, you wonder, just because we saw a lot of movies set in the 1850s in which you had male characters speaking like Clark Gable in Gone with the Wind or speaking like some other idea of how we thought the 50s people spoke 1850s, who are we to say that Monty Cliff doing this 1950s guy in 1850 didn't actually bring some verisimilitudinousness to the role that we otherwise never thought of? Because we always saw that era, not as it was, but through the movies that we saw. There's a long answer to your question, which wasn't even a question in the first place. Yeah, I think you're right about this. You don't really know. And in certain ways, Monty Clift is way closer in effect, in sentimentality to what you'd find in Henry James characters in this kind of upper class environment than, say, the tougher guys were and the stuffier people. Mm -hmm. I think it's an adaptation of Washington Square, which is a fine, fine yes. book. Um, absolutely. Harvey Mansfield says it's a disappointing book about disappointment, and <laughs> uh, it had to be gussied up for the screen because people don't want to deal with disappointment. 
it was a big theme of the 50s that the forming of middle brow and the cultural confidence of middle class culture was from the beginning, as you say, falling apart because both sides were disappointed with each other. One side mm-hmm. looked at the other as way too crass, commercial and self-satisfied. And the other side looked at the, these newer, younger, more aggressively sentimental types as too self-righteous, too ungrateful, and not just in a hurry, but but in a hurry to break something up. Right. No, you're, you're quite right to break something up. There's this nihilism that comes out of it. And again, you have to wonder why... There was nihilism, of course, in the 20s. I mean, you, you, you started to see movies that would break the code that was coming. Like, for example, The Wild Party, Clara Bow, 1929. She shows her legs. She goes to roadhouses. She gets hammered. She gets drunk. She runs around the professor. I mean, it's, she's very shocking. But it wasn't nihilistic. It was youthful exuberance. You go to the 30s, and there's every reason for there to be nihilism. But you don't have it. Because you've, I, I'm sorry, either I heard a dog or I heard some, uh, like, air raid siren in the background. <laughs> it wasn't the dog. Okay, well then take cover because the show, the gas is coming. Um, it, you, I mean, Busby, you'd have a Busby Berkeley movie, right? With all uh-huh. the glitz and the glitter. But what would they be singing? They'd be singing The Forgotten Man, Brother Can You Spare a Dime, Depression-era stuff. You look at the start of one of the Gold Diggers movies, We're in the Money, right? This great, big, huge scene with an enormous coin, and they're all singing, We're in the Money. And people think that somehow this was some pablum that they gave to people to make them feel like things were better than they were. Well, if you watch the movie, the scene, We're in the Money, gets shut down because they're out of money. They can't put on the play because they've run out of money, which the audience surely must have enjoyed and gotten because the audience wasn't stupid. There was enough in the culture to keep people from going completely nihilistic, even though they had every reason to do so, because the 30s from 29 to 32 and then 34, 36, things were falling apart. And then you have a war. My God, you've got a war where everybody's, your menfolk are gone. There are stars in the window. You dread the telegram guy coming up the, the walk, and there's still no catastrophic nihilism. And then you get to the end of that after we've succeeded and pulled ourselves out of this crap, and that's when the nihilism comes. So, yeah, you've got people just scratching their heads and saying, what's the matter with you people? But the people of the 50s who had that idea, I'm convinced, shepherded in the nihilism of the 60s and approved of it and agreed because here, this new generation, they got it, man. They saw how phony everything was. These are the heirs to Catcher in the Rye. These kids coming up, they're going to help this society be better. And what do you get? You get Manson. Yeah, it's true that there was so much of countercultural push and it was so self-certain and oblivious that it went very bad very quick. I think it's now almost impossible to show people or to give them a sense of how triumphant culturally liberalism was in the 50s, how cocksure it was and how dismissive of everything that came before it. It was a somewhat domesticated, but also universalized form of Mencken and people mm. like him. And in maybe just a decade or a bit more than a decade of dominance, it ended up with what happened with the hippies. And it mm. completely collapsed. Just like it's, it would be very hard to explain to people what it meant for prestige to, be, to create its own popularity in America middle-class liberalism or upper-middle-class liberalism of the 50s created its own prestige. You mentioned West Side Story. We've been talking about this before, about people like Leonard Bernstein being and deserving to be celebrities. Right. 
that was a different sort of place. And of course, he didn't understand, like many of them did not understand how they turned themselves into the kind of caricatures you read so accurately reported in Tom Wolfe's Radical Chic. These people go from their liberalism on civil rights and urbanity and noblesse oblige even to turning radical politics into a fetish to a large extent because they know it's none of their problems. As Tom Wolfe puts it from the point of view of Leonard Bernstein, the black power problem is how do you get rid of your black servants to import Hispanic servants so that you don't insult the Black Panthers? In that way, I believe Bernstein and his wife were prophetic. That's what liberals do now, who can afford it. You're right. When you said before that there was um, the the 50s liberalism, the middle brow idea was not ahistorical. It was very much about finding the things in the past that uh, would enrich your life. But it increasingly became a signifier for social status. In other words, if you were an aspirational middle-class person with liberal values, you bought that big set of Tchaikovsky uh, records. You bought that the, the great book set, partly to enrich yourself, but eventually to show others that this is a class signifier, that I belong to this group. And Bernstein comes along, and, and, and while the 60s indeed had guys like Lenny showing you what was great about the musical past, they also were part and parcel of the disassembly of Western culture and the enshrinement of visual and audio nonsense. And again, this is just pure Tom Wolfe, painted word, radical chic. You had all of these ideas coming through, which it was not important really to be an aesthetically pleasing piece of work. You had to have an intellectually satisfying theory that you could talk about at parties. So you have fluxus and you have the post-expressionism and post-abstract expressionism and pop art and all the rest of it. And then you have these people who delight in the new without realizing that their constant appetite for something new is pushing away the old standards that kept the flood of shite from coming over the dikes and just inundating the culture. And that's what they did. Here you have a generation probably brought up to be the last stewards of the 20th century tradition, and they washed their hands of it, walked away, and started celebrating all this other destructive stuff because they because destruction is fun. Destruction gives you energy. I mean, it's Perkins in the cafeteria in 1984, the destruction of language. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's a great thrill in tearing things down. And maybe they assume because this is America, something else would always come back and be built in its place. But we're still living with what they tore down. And my dog is barking at something. I hope you hear that. Yep. He probably, supports he's probably, you. Morally, he supports you. He's probably telling me to cut to the chase. You know? he's, he's saying, it's completely unfair. This is not commercial radio. The guy doesn't have a kill button. So you're just going on and on and on and on. <laughs> And I'm not sure if we've summed up or stated anything other than we are fascinated by the past and we are critical of it in a way that is the way you feel about a brother who's gone, an older brother who went astray. You wish you could have sat them down and had the intervention. Yeah, it is what America has to live with. America has not found any way around middle brow. That's the big failure of liberalism. It has not removed the middle brow from public life, from what America wants and needs even. But it also has kind of compromised it, weakened it massively. What it's done, it's eliminated it, and you have lowbrow, and then you have the highbrow, which is is irrelevant these days unless you talk about opera and the rest of it. If you call opera and classical music concerts the highbrow, then that's a very small portion. What you have is then an elite, a cultural elite, that is aping the lowbrow in order to seem relevant and to take rude animal energy from the proles. I mean, that's Charles Murray's point, I think. 
and everybody else for that matter is looking at is saying their problem is that our upper managerial elites are aping the behaviors of the people that supposedly are supposed to look elsewhere for guidance, which of course is a rather classist and and condescending attitude. But yeah. it's kind of, tr- but you know what I mean. So sure. it's, it's a sign of authenticity these days to be vulgar, to be unlettered, to be slovenly. These things show that you're not trammeled by the by the trapping by the bourgeois trappings of culture. You're you're a real honest creature. And it's it's one of those TikTok metronomic back and forth things that goes through every society. I mean, you go back to Rome and there's people complaining. You know, look at that guy. Toga, look at the way his toga is folded. What is the matter with these people these days? So it's it's nothing new. I sure. just hope to live. You know, I just remember in the late 70s, early 80s, there was actually a vogue for dressing sharp because into <clears throat> the thrift stores of America flooded the jackets and ties of a generation that was dying out or just moving and going to Phoenix or Florida so they cleaned out their closets. So we had all these incredibly sharp, narrow, lapeled, thin-tied, vintage outfits that we could wear. And they were it was vastly popular. And all of a sudden, people started to look sharp. Joe Jackson put out an album, look sharp. And guys on stage, rock musicians, were wearing ties. This is amazing. So I lived through that era for a little bit, and then, of course, back to slovenliness. Then in the 90s, we had a little bit of a lounge revival where zoot suits, okay, but, you know, little fedoras, and there was something of a dressing-up attitude toward it. But then we went back to slovenly because it's easy. I hope to live long enough to be able to see a full-blown return to that sort of culture where to be buttoned up and to be sharp is expected of men. Expected of them instead of just a uniform that they put on to go make dollars to pay for the, uh, the expensive coffee. This is what it means to be American. People still will put on a suit for an interview and will take confidence from it. Will mm-hmm. be anxious about getting it right. Will know that in some sense it matters. But it's as American when once you get back home to shake off that tie, to open up that collar. You don't want to be too formal. You don't want formality to take control of you. There's always something to be put up with somewhat or instead to be put on as a style like with looking sharp. Oliver Stone had Alan Flusser design the suits for Wall Street, and it did uh, spawn, or it was a part at least, of a renaissance of sharp dressing Mm -hmm. in the professional classes, only to be replaced by the campus culture slovenliness of the late Gen X or early millennials at least. And I'm torn about this because in 1939, a book by uh, David Gelertner, who's the, it, it's a wonderful book about the world of the fair, the world's fair. And he talks about the heaviness of everyday objects. And he talks about the obligations that the culture put on you so that when you sat at the dinner table, your collar was not loosened. You were a man at the dinner table with your family and your collar was not loosened. To me, that seems like a step too far. If you're at home, you ought to be able to loosen that and relax a little bit. But the the obligation sense of the culture reached so far that men of a certain position and class and breeding and intellect and the rest of it were obliged to feel a certain way. You always applaud the loosening of that for the sake of comfort and just because it seems a little bit ridiculous. But of course, then you say, the minute you do, it all unravels and we're back and it's sweatpants at McDonald's. People laugh at saying they couldn't show Elvis Presley's waist on the Ed Sullivan show. They had to shoot him on above. But they were correct because the minute it went down to the waist, then it's just 20, 30 years to toplessness on the Today Show and all the chalks are off. So where do you say 
Well, we're, we're always arguing about that. We're always saying where the line should be drawn. But I know and you know that when we look back on those movies and the early Hitchcock and the things, the way people dress, the way the aggregate effect on the world was when all the women looked like that and all the men basically looked like that, the aggregate effect was to create a world that looks so much more grown up and sophisticated than the one that we inhabit now. And you have to ask, is that just because it's a movie or is that because the sense of all of these people with a shared understanding of their common obligations constitute an adulthood much different than what we have today? Yeah, I do think that adulthood is both a real concern and was a reality because it's not just Hitchcock. You could see the old baseball parks, 20,000 yes. people there, about 20,000 hats. Yes, exactly. Precisely. And I always love those shots where people are throwing their straw boaters up in the air and you see 15,000 straw boaters go up and you, th and you think, how could they find their own hat? Oh, well, it doesn't matter. They're all wearing the same hat. Yeah, that's true. So hey, it I, does add something and it does contribute something. And you're also right that we always have to keep quarreling about this at some level because middle brow is inherently unstable. The requirement of dignifying a middle class life also comes up with this sense of middle class life should be self-expressive then. You're dignifying human individuality. We'll express that individuality. And then things go crazy. And you're right that changes that seem frivolous, in fact, announce something amazing and usually disturbing but there's no good way as it were around it who could look at something like Beatlemania and in a sense it's funny but in another sense how were the, all those girls brought up <laughs> right well the question is I'm gonna think about that and get back to you but I do want you to know that Ross Bag Desarian was indeed the songwriter in, yes yes you're right in Rear Window and that he was the guy who did the chipmunks. And the chipmunk things with the sped up voices resulted in more sped up voices songs than you can. And I'm not just talking purple people eater or teeny weeny bikini. There is, there is, there is a rich genre out there of aliens slash rodent voices doing novelty songs, the likes of which there's a, there, I'm sure there's a, a Napoleon the 14th, they're coming to take me away sped up version in some, it, 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 uh, it Oh, we haven't even begun to, oh, yeah. to scratch the surface. Of the There's another of example of middle brow degenerating. <laughs> we will. It's well, been fun, my friend. We'll talk again very soon. Yes. I hope next week. Thanks and, for uh, joining me, James. And we'll do we'll do this again. But oh, uh, yeah. I am looking to do more conversations about mm -hmm. where middle brow comes from and what it's like, and think it's something that should be preserved that people could enjoy. So we'll yes. give this a shot, see how it works. Absolutely. Can't wait to see uh, the comments that we get on this. And like I say, anytime you want to do this once a week, I'm, I'm here. Thanks. Go attend to your dog who has been a loyal supporter. Actually, I don't have a dog at all. It's just my excuse to get off podcasts. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>